0: Welcome ladies and gentlemen to another edition of the podcast and before I get into my spiel and this is you know a, a new thing I've done for video not like a new segment or anything of that and there's no by the way no notes I'm looking at I'm looking right at the camera which I usually never do I'm always usually looking at the screen but I'm looking to, into the uh, camera the face camera whatever you want to call it uh, about this video and I should have done this for the other ones and split up into two so it gives me enough time to um spread out episodes so i don't have to worry about getting a guest the week of a new episode anyways what i want to talk about and i sort of just alluded to that is that this week's episode was a long one i recorded an episode this week two hours in length the longest i've ever done the man by the name of david beater is the editor and sort of creative force and genius behind the endless summer quarterly beach boys magazine uh for the last uh, almost 30 years to be honest and it was such a great conversation the the first half of these videos is about uh, his life right now and sort of how he got into the beach boys and jan and Dean music and the magazine and then the second half is sort of about the beach boys and his relationship with the band and i don't want to say inner circle but sort of that in a sense and his opinion and viewpoint on stuff when beach boys uh, news or updates come out, and he already knows about it, but can't really say it about it. His viewpoint on people's opinions on certain Beach Boys members. Uh, it was a long conversation, like I said. He was very insightful, inquisitive, poignant, or however you say it, and many of the adjectives that describe what it's like from his perspective with the Beach Boys and his view on the band and his relationships with them, the inner circle sort of saying. Although that might not necessarily be true, and that he may disagree with that, but whatever. Uh, but like I said, though, this was a very long episode, so stay tuned to this. I hope you all enjoy this weekend's or this past weekend's um, N- uh, NFL uh, AFC and NFC Championship Games. Depending on when you see this episode, you may see it Tuesday, so the weekend prior. Or we may see it, who knows, in the future, weeks after the NFL season or months or years after it ended, but enjoy this part one and part two will be next week on next Tuesday, so take care and enjoy this. Um wake up, it's the Nolan Cart Night Show star Nolan. are you Nolan Nolan's guest this week, David Beer to the program. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's Nolan. And
1: welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of the show. And joining me this week is a pretty special and amazing person. Not only is he a fanatic fan of the frivolity that is all the fun, fun, fun of the Beach Boys, but he's also the host of Good Vibrations at Beach Boys program. But he's also a producer, a songwriter, graphic artist, but also the creative genius. For the last 29 years of Endless Summer Quarterly, the best source of musical reading material ever, I think. He is the one and the only David Beard. David, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on the show. Of
1: course. Well, as we were talking a few seconds ago about uh about you know snow and the weather and all that fun jazz and uh the Beach Boys. Um, obviously, the last two years, as I like to sort of talk with all my guests, it's been an interesting time. Music has been on and off. Concerts, I'm sure. You know, the Beach Boys, they've been on off, but thankfully they're back. Brian's back touring, and he's got a big tour coming up as well as the Beach Boys, and this is their big year. And you've been doing ESQ stuff during the pandemic, but how's life been for you these last hectic
0: few years?
2: Well, it's, it's been at times quite challenging. Uh, I, I will disclose I had a, uh, I've had a number of surgeries. Uh, in 2019, I had stage four neuroendocrine cancer. Fortunately for me, I did not have to go undergo chemotherapy. Um, and then in November of 2020, during the pandemic, I had to have my spleen removed because I had a tumor okay. that had grown attached to my stomach and spleen. So when they did that surgery, they had to remove my spleen. So it was, uh, which resulted in me being in the hospital just twice this holiday season because I had a fever. So if I get a fever of above 100.4, okay. um, it, it, I have to go into the hospital. So it's it's a unique, it's uh, a lot to digest and process because it is generally speaking for anybody out there, uh, different times for all. And uh, to have to adjust the way that I approach my life uh, because of the surgeries that I've had um, makes it even more challenging. I'm, I'm talking to you and I'm looking behind yeah. <laughs> and seeing this array of mess like overheat (laughs) (laughs) you can tell i when i go when i come. this is my office so when i come into work i just kind of go to work and i kind of have blinders on all (laughs) the stuff going on around me because i just come and i sit down and i this is where i do my podcast and i do the magazine this is right here so
1: well i want to talk about the magazine uh, and how it's been the last you know bit of time and you know, you obviously you've still released our uh, additions, as I just mentioned before going the one for Carl, what would have been his um, 75th birthday, but how much of the construction of the issues the last few years, how much has, has that changed since this all started?
2: Well, it really changed for me uh, in 1999, uh, because in 1999, uh, we had when, 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 I started doing the magazine in 19, August of 93 with Lee Dempsey. Uh, Lee was involved in writing. He was involved in the editorial. Um, and we had a guy, a good friend of ours, Greg Russell, doing the graphic design. Because I, I mean, I love music, but I wasn't really into the graphic design yeah, side sure. of things. So I would go over and I would sit with Greg. And he worked in Cork Express. And I would study what he, I would just pay attention to what he was doing and kind of direct you know, next to him, and say, "This, let's try this. Let's let's do this." So I learned kind of inadvertently graphic design just from watching Greg for a number of years because he was the guy who was putting together the magazine from '93 until I think '99. Um, so I, and slowly but surely, by that time, I got Cork Express and I started to work in it. So by the time that Greg kind of we transitioned uh, to me, uh, it just gave me more controls. Like I guess I liken it to um if somebody's the mixer in a in a recording studio, okay. you know you don't want two mixers, it's better to just have one. And I look back at the stuff I started doing when I took over, and I think the magazines come a long way from a graphic design standpoint and from a content standpoint and the way that the content is presented. So um I've been pleased with with the value that I've been, been able to consistently uh, bring to the fans for, in that respect.
1: The last two years during this whole pandemic when you've been doing this, ha- has it at any point been sort of hard for you to paint a picture of the story that you're telling when it's strictly just over the phone? Cause I'm sure beforehand you were in person doing stuff, but what was that process like during this pro- time?
2: Well, actually most of the interviews I do are over the phone. Uh, when When timing aligns where they're on tour, And they can sit with me, which has happened, uh, you know, where they can sit with me before a show or after a show. I mean, I had a great interview back in 2000 with Brian after a show. um, He was much younger then, (laughs) as was I. Um, I'll tell you a funny story about that in a second. And then, like, Mike, typically Mike will do his interviews before the show. If Again, if it's all set up and they understand, it's easier on the phone because yeah. you know if they're going from mike actually prefers to do interviews while he's on tour on the uh-huh. phone because when you think about it if you're sitting in a tour bus driving for hours yeah. from one location to another what else is he doing of course and yeah. so that that i found that he's that's when he's most he's most comfortable is when he's not when he can just kind of shoot the breeze with me, talk about other things Definitely. in life, and then we'll get down to the conversation at hand, which is about whichever topic I'm talking to him about, and in 2000, when I was backstage with Brian, I had, I I would, I was had been in radio for a number of years, that's what I did right out of high school, I went to a broadcasting school, and then went running to radio, so I had one of the things I always like to do is voices, and some I'm better at than others. But one of the things I thought I would do if I got some time with Brian after the interview, is I would try to do my Paul McCartney impression, and I, and I, I'll, I'll try to do it here. It, it's been a long time. You have to really stay in practice with things. but so I was sitting next to Brian. Our interview ended. And I have it on tape because the tape was still rolling. And I said, "Hey, Brian, I'd like before we go, I'd like to do my Paul McCartney impression for you." And he went, "Oh, really you know kind of like what does that even mean yeah because lots of people do elvis presley impressions right Mm -hmm. i i don't do elvis impressions um but he just had this like kind of suspicious look like what what huh and um so i just started and said so one day i woke up and there's (laughs) a melody you know going about in my head and i went over to the piano and i played scrambled eggs Oh my darling how I love your legs and those those were good legs those were and he just goes he had three responses he goes that's messed up that's unbelievable that's pretty damn good and, and he stood up and I hugged him and he left and oh, and wow. that was like my moment of i you know i I you know, I had this moment with Brian, and yeah. that, of course, never went into print that That wasn't something that had anything to do with the interview or anything, but it was just this neat little moment that I had with him and it's those those kind of things where you know there's 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 other things that are that that wouldn't be fitting for this yeah, sure. this conversation where I tell dirty jokes or whatever mm-hmm. to the guys that's that was one of the things I did, and I think it's because I came from radio that i I immediately when it, when I started to get to know them, when I would meet them be, you know, because there's an initial thing. And I think this happens with fans and any, any any I you know, celebrity or whatever For it sure. is that you, that you get to meet, you go backstage or whatever it is. And you have maybe your first, oh, you have a camera, I gotta get a picture. And then there's the, I also got my Sharpie. I got my Sharpie here and I got my album. And I want them the same, you know, this is the, so you have all these things going on in your head that you that you're trying, to, to, it's so important that you get yes. those things accomplished. And then once you do those things, and I've been privileged and honored to be able to do those things a thousand times over, so much so that now with the magazine, I actually have extra stuff that's signed that I give away. Um, and it's, you, get, you get past that point, I, and I thought, okay, well, if they're going to allow me into their lives and they're going to yeah. give me their time and their energy, and they're going to talk to me about these things and let me deliver these stories in the magazine, then I'm going to kind of lighten, I, I just want to lighten the mood. I don't want this to be the usual interview. So I would always come in with a joke. I'd always have, and I don't know if they always heard the jokes, but they're usually something that was relevant to what was going on in the news cycle at that given time. So I'd have some sort of joke, and I'd come in before I'd start the interview. i I would just you know, tell a joke just to kind of get their mind at ease, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and that really kind of lent itself to becoming, I don't know, I wouldn't call it friends. Yeah, I've never, becoming friendly. Um, yeah. I, I always tell anybody, yes, I've known these guys for a very long time, but the idea of coming into their lives and becoming their friends is kind of a fool's errand to me. Yeah. Um, if, if you come into it just with Uh, No hidden agenda and just uh, true purpose and value, you know, knowing that whatever you're, if they're going to give you their time, then you're going to do your due diligence to execute the best way that you can to, to present who they are in, in written form. And, and it's not so much them just talking about an album or a song, but trying to also capture the essence of of, of who they are as people and translating that onto the page.
1: I want to quickly ask, and I want to get on to sort of the beginning of, of of your story. When you had done the impression for Brian, do you ever mention that to him nowadays? That of that moment to him, or is it something that was just so long ago that he
2: couldn't? Remember? I I don't know that he'd recall. But a year two, a year later, I had him on the phone, and I did say, "Hey, I want to do another McCartney impression," and he said, "Okay, you know." And so it's just that one was not. I don't even know what it was. I said I just went into the voice. You know the voicing and he cracked up and then we talked about uh one of my my favorite beach song but you know that's but that you know and but with each of them they each have a very unique sense of humor
1: i'm sure yeah
2: um their own way and again if you can just make them happy yeah. for having spent their time with you that's that's kind of the that's i want them to feel rewarded because i feel rewarded
1: you mentioned a few seconds ago um that you know, your job is to, you know, not be not necessarily be friends or close with them, but to sort of make them at ease when you're in their presence. Is there one that for you that's been I don't want to say harder, but hard, I guess harder at first meeting them that was a challenge for you to get, you know, make them at ease or were they just, you know, something be the same?
2: Uh, I think that the hardest one to, to kind of just have relax is Brian. Yeah, um, sure. Brian is just uh, and if this is true with all of them everybody always wants something from them definitely so you know always right right whether it's they want them to perform on stage and they're showing up to a gig whether they want an interview with them because they're releasing a new collection a new song whatever whatever it is or an autograph or a picture uh back in the 60s it was probably a piece of their hair (laughs) uh or their clothing um but you know they're one, I just consider, I, I don't know if it's because I was in radio or not, but I just consider myself lucky that when I met them, um, I just immediately viewed them as human beings. I didn't, I i, I, I felt that they were really cool and interesting people, um, and that's how I've always thought of them. Uh, when I met the Moody Blues, that was different. I was, they are actually my favorite crew and I was all kind of I, Justin Hayward, I was just having him sign some albums for me, and I was just tongue tied. I I don't even oh, know yeah. what I. It was kind of like the I'm not I'm not worthy scene in uh, Wayne's World, oh, you know. Sure, yeah. I, it's that it was that feeling. But then when I walked onto John Lodge, um, I thought, God, I don't want to stand there tongue tied like that. What do I oh. say to John Lodge? Because it was like a few feet to walk to him with the records. So I said, Hey, you guys worked with Brian Wilson, right? And then mm-hmm. boom, it was this beautiful, relaxed oh, yeah. conversation. So that that was a learning lesson and 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 i think the biggest the biggest lesson i learned and i'd already been doing the magazine for a few years was the beat the beatles anthology uh in 96 that was what taught me a big lesson because i was watching it and i thought my gosh this guy isn't this interviewer isn't asking very difficult questions
3: definitely yeah
2: and i thought they're kind of softball but there's a there's a point where the interview the interviewer asked john paul not done. sorry, Paul, George, and Ringo about the time they were at Elvis's house. And did they remember the color of Priscilla's dress? And I thought, <laughs> why is he asking that? Yeah. And, and, and then they each have their answers. And then it comes to George. And George says, I don't remember the color of the dress. I was looking for Rifa. And I thought to myself, if the, if, the, if, the, if the guy asking the questions, and I'm sure he had done his research, and I'm sure he knows that they were getting high there, had he, had he said to George, is it true that you were looking for pot when you were at Elvis's house? What that does is it would put George on the defensive automatically. It would, it would even if George didn't mind the question, it would be kind of putting your thumb down on the interview subject. So yeah. you're automatically putting uh, a thought into the person as opposed to leaving it open-ended and allowing the person to reflect on the era of the question that you're asking about. And that was a big learning moment for me to, to kind of not not throw some sort of weird off thing, random thing about Priscilla's dress, yeah. but the way to approach asking somebody a question and to leave it kind of them to let their minds explore what you're asking. So they who knows what you'll get, right? And that may yeah. lead to something else that you weren't even thinking about asking them. So that's that, that was a telling moment for me.
1: And that definitely separates it, and I try my best to do that in this sort of situation, and maybe in your situation as well, where, you know, these people, whether it's someone in the main group, whether it be the Beatles or the Beach Boys, or maybe the supporting cast that's played with them, you know, they have hundreds of interviews, thousands, certain people, and they get asked a lot of the same stuff, so it's not as entertaining as if you asked that question about the dress color instead of the reef or whatever it was. Um, Yeah, yeah, that's right. You mentioned the Moody Blues, and... The Beach Boys, and I know you're um, a, f- a fan of Jan Dean. But growing up in New York, how much of that music, Beach Boys and Jan and Dean specifically, w- were around in your area, or was it totally something else that you had been listening to at that point?
2: It was, it was something else, and it's the funniest thing too, because it took me years, I mean, decades, to realize how I got into the Beach Boys, and, and I and I mean, I mean, I can remember hearing. Uh, beach boy songs on the radio i don't really remember any jan and dean uh, and i don't know that i would have known the difference let's say little old lady or cersei would come on i don't sure. know that when i was at it i would have even known um the thing that i was into and a lot of my buddies were too was kiss okay and i mean i had a huge peter chris poster and a huge um i think paul stanley it seems those were my favorite and at the time destroyer came out in 76 i mean that that wow. album uh, I just recently downloaded on iTunes the 45th anniversary of that album. Uh, it's just, that was a concept album to me. It starts, the radio turns on, you hear the, the keys turning, the car cranking up. It's very visual. And then the music starts and it carries you through the album. And, and uh, I just, that the visualization, and I became a major KISS fan very quickly. We all were, all the kids in I mean, I was Gene Simmons for Halloween one year. Wow, Not, not very, I didn't look very good, but you know, we, you just, you do what you do. Yeah. You put the makeup on and then you go out. And, um, but we were all Kiss fans. And in 1978, Kiss Alive 2 came out. Okay. And it was three sides that were a live show. And then the fourth side of the record was the studio cuts that were either b-sides to singles or left off albums or or whatever the rhyme or reason was and one of the songs was any way you want it and paul stanley sings lead on it but it's the dave clark five hit but again Mm -hmm. there was no google in 1980 whatever and i had no idea i didn't care who the dave clark five were Mm -hmm. i just loved that song and i can remember going into junior high school and walking down the hallways and singing any way you want it (laughs) and and that was my introduction to oldies music oh, that yeah. that song by kiss <laughs> was 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 what was what was one of the most was as significant in my memory as being one of the first songs that really drew me in that direction and around that time probably i was probably a little younger i would go to um it was either my elementary school or the it was one two first second or third grade or the fourth fifth and sixth grade we went to like a uh the school was holding um, on a Friday night or something like a garage sale in the gym oh, okay. you know and we went there and one of the 45s I got I think is NGM records the f- one side was the Cal Sills Indian Lake uh-huh. and then the other side was everybody's somebody's fool and who, I can't I'm trying to remember who that's by that Connie Steve I don't I want to say it's Connie Stevens but I don't think that's right but so that was that was that was a, uh, an introduction. I I liked Indian Lake. I liked everybody's somebody's fool, but I didn't. It, it wasn't so that um, I found that um, I was I was that drawn to those songs. I didn't I didn't feel like oh I got to find out more about these groups or this person or anything like that. But it was Kiss Kiss. So I had. I was getting little smatterings and little things of of oldies music, and it's when I moved. We moved. My dad, IBM job, transferred him from Endicott, New York, and that's by the way. Steve Kalanich is also from Endicott, so that's um, for those Beach Boy fans out there. (laughs) Although we never we didn't know each other meet until years later. Um, But we moved down in January of '79 to the Carolinas here, and once we got down here. I want to say it was February of 79. Then my parents went out and it was just my younger brother and I, and just by chance, I happened to have the TV on and dead man's curve came on the story about Jan and Dean. And, and I watched it and I, and I thought it was really cool and fun and interesting. Now the second part of it, which is like where he has his accident and then he's recovering that kind of is like a uh, a heartwarming part of the story. But the yeah. first part of the story, where they're becoming these guys who sing in a garage, they then they then they go from the garage to the recording studio. there's a scene in that. So it's an average TV movie as as yeah. many TV movies yes. about. Celebrities are they're they're not they're not as good as, as if they went to a motion picture and ended up in a movie theater.
3: Yeah, sure. It's
2: just different budgets, and then that's why you get what you get. But, but there's a scene where Richard Hatch and Bruce Davidson are standing next to each other with surfboards at the ocean, and he's as Jan Richard looks over at Bruce and says, "You know this this was sound so good on tape," and he's like, "What?" I said this said so good on tape, and he's referring to the surf, right. the sound of the ocean. But they cut from that scene right into the studio all of a sudden they're in the studio and they're singing surfing you know surfing is the only might the only and it's just so just that edit that cut and as soon as i saw that scene i went i i gotta get this music <laughs> wait where is where do i find this music now gratefully and thankfully at that time in my life seventy-nine, eighty, you could go you, you didn't have to go very far in a car to go to a used record shop or a, or a record store or anything. And it was pretty easy to find uh, things. And they were everywhere in the Charlotte market. So I went within it, within, I don't know what the timeframe was because I'd misremember it, but it wasn't long before I went and purchased the Jan and Dean Anthology album, which is kind of like Kiss Alive 2, but in a reversed way. Yeah. So that is a two record set. And so Jan and Dean's hits are on sides one, two, and three. And then the fourth side of the anthology album is this weird mashed up machine guns, cows mooing, cars crashing, burps. Uh, I can't even think what else. Just whatever you can throw, a cacophony of sound effects thrown in with Jan and Dean performing live music. So I'm like, what is this? And and it, and I think around that time, I was 14 or so. And for a 14-year-old kid, boy, I, I can't imagine a 14-year-old girl enjoying it. Yeah. But for me, I just thought it was hysterical because I didn't yeah. understand it. And I just thought it was so odd. I liked odd. And I still do. So at the same time, I was getting into Steve Martin. Right. Steve Martin used to be a fantastic stand-up comedian yeah. in the late 70s, early 80s. I mean, he had, I mean, the world was his oyster. And he was a clean stand-up comedian. And he was always the butt of his own
3: jokes,
2: (laughs) which is unique because there's very few comedians that ever have been able to execute successfully that type of stand-up. And um, so, uh, you know, he'd do his Let's Get Small. was his first album, Wild and Crazy Guy, which he actually took that. And then on Saturday Night Live, if anybody's out there, you watch, you can go on uh, Peacock. If you got streaming service to Peacock, you can watch all the old Saturday Night Lives. And you can see Steve Martin way back in the day do his opening routine. He'd do Wild and Crazy Guy. And he even did a skit with Dan Aykroyd called Wild and Crazy Guy. So the <laughs> two of them would do their, their whole shaking thing and they would be from, I don't know, Yugoslavia or something. I don't know. It's ridiculous. But um, Steve Martin albums. So I, I start getting Steve Martin albums. And there's one day that I remember very vividly. I was sitting in my room and I'm going to put on the Steve Martin album. So I, I pull out the sleeve and I'm getting the record on and I'm, I put the record on and I'm looking at the sleeve that comes, you know, that came out and it says, graphic design by Dino Torrance. And I went, there's just absolutely no way that's the same guy. There's no way. <laughs> and, then, and then I go to my anthology album and I notice the anthology album was designed by Dean O. There's the O, right? Yeah. It's not Dean Torrance. It's Dean O. Torrance. And I went, son of a gun. This is he. What, huh? and so i that was one of my early lessons of being of being more than just one thing yeah right it don't just if you can do one thing great well don't let that let me always ask yourself what more, more can i do with what i'm doing and so um and then of course when when dead man's curve came out We kind of, there's a little bit of, uh, in in that TV movie where you see that Dean is into graphics, but you don't see it enough. You don't understand that he went to USC, got a degree, and then went on to design albums for, he he designed the Chicago Transit Authority logo Mm -hmm. before they became Chicago. He designed that, In-N-Out Burger, uh, the American Music Awards logo. Um, I want to say the Roxy, I think think he did that. the the nitty-gritty dirt band he designed a number of their albums he designed uh we lost uh one of the monkeys recently michael nesmith dean designed a number of mike nesmith's albums so it's and linda ronstadt i mean it's just and and oh since we were talking about the beach boys the beach boys most iconic logo yeah the the neon that's dean's work and so you look at that and it's like well son of a gun i mean he That's what people don't understand. I'm going to go off on on a quick aside here. What people don't understand about Jan and Dean were they were not they were in the music industry, but both of them had a scholastic background. Jan was studying to be a medical doctor. Dean was studying to be a graphic designer slash architect, whatever that umbrella. And and so Jan, Jan was going to UCLA. Dean was going to USC. They were both doing quite well. And Dean just, Dean, Dean never took his eye off of education, ever. He, he, it didn't matter what they were doing as a Jan and Dean act. He never took his eye off what he was doing for a degree. And, I, and that, uh, I, that, that when I understood all that, I, I was amazed by it. Because Jan and Dean would go to the record label and the record label, Liberty Records, would say to them, You have to do this, this, and this. And they go, No, we don't. And they'd say, Yes, you do. And they'd say, No, we don't. They say, Well, what do you mean? You're on a contract. You say, Well, you can do whatever you want with that contract. We don't care. Because I'm going to USC and he's going to UCLA. So you can, we don't, we don't care. See, and that's why Dean never had a Christmas album. Okay, this is another fun. They did they did record one Christmas song, Frosty the Snowman. The reason they never did a Christmas album is because artists would record their Christmas albums during the summer. Oh, right. Well, Jan and Dean would go to college, they'd get out of college, and during the summer, they would tour as Jan and Dean. Oh, right. That was when they would do their appearances and record their other, you know, their other, they, they would record uh, their albums in between courses during the college year. Oh, right. So whether it's the Little Old Lady from Pasadena album or the Dead Man's Curve album, whatever it was, or the Drag City album, they would do that, while sporadically during the college years. So they were always kind of on the go, always creating music. And Jan was the creative force behind that. And Dean saw that Jan was the producer, the creative force and thought, well, how can I, what can I do behind the scenes other than appearing in the pictures and yeah. singing on the songs? What can my contribution be? So that's why he started down this avenue of art because he, he, he pictured and envisioned that he could be the designer for Jan and Dean well, Jan would be the music maker for uh, Jan and Dean. So that, that is kind of the direction they were going. And they had, when Jan had his accident, Dean had created a Jan and Dean label. Right. They, had, they had their own label. They wanted out of their contract with Liberty. And uh, the, and, and I, was, I, I know I'm getting off on a side here, but the reason the Anthology album turned out to be so great for me, because I told you side four is so confusing, I didn't <laughs> have any idea what it was years later after probably 20 years that's not an exaggeration 20 years of me nudging dean and picking on dean and reminding dean how great it would be see side four is actually an abridged condensed version of this show they did that they actually handed over to liberty records to dissolve their contract (laughs) (laughs) so they purposely in 65 they released a live album called command performance and and i love it that's one of my favorite jan and dean albums and a year later the record label says we want another live album and jan and dean are like well why would we do that we just did that we don't want to do that again they said we want you to do that so they went to the hullabaloo nightclub did two shows and during the show one of the shows somebody coughed and said jan said bless you or do you need an analgesic or something like that (laughs) And, and so what happens is they, they then decided, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to put these Hullabaloo shows together and let's go get all these sound effects and just <laughs> slam them into this. And we're going to turn that into the record label and say, see you later. <laughs> Knowing that the record label is going to not want to release it. Yeah. So they purposely sabotaged their own <laughs> shows, went into the record label, and it actually says, I can't actually... I, I don't want to get, I don't want to make this an R rating, but the writing on the acid tape is, is, is not clean. And, uh, it was fill it with fill in the blank. And instead of filet of soul, it was filet of, and, um, that's what it wrote that it actually said that on the label that they handed to the record executives. Oh and uh, so they sat in the room with the record executives. They listened and they're like, "We, what is this? We can't release this. And then Jan had his accident. And then, so if, you, if anyone watching this actually has a Jan and Dean Fillet of Soul album that was released by Liberty Records back in the 60s, that is kind of like a Frankenstein version <laughs> of what Jan and Dean turned into them. And not what Jan and Dean envisioned for that release. And one of the great, uh, most rewarding, valuable things I was able to do with Dean in 2017 was talk him into releasing that in its full entirety, the original Filet of Souls show with all that silly stuff on it. Um, and it, it was released by Omnivore Recordings in September 2017 and is available now on Amazon. So I, mm-hmm. if you like weird funky doesn't make any sense humor mixed with songs then this album's for you but for me as a kid who got it when i was 14 or whatever it was a big deal to help kind of finally get that out there after all those years and to have dean be on board with it i want to i want to ask you this because
1: i've asked i had when i had bobby figaro on and gary on and people such as that I, i asked them whether it's sports as well that you know when you're good at something you know from a young age this is what I'm going to do and this is what's going to be in my life and they sort of talked about it but for you was there when you were younger around this period of time was there any sort of concept that you had that this would be where you are today or is it something that sh- struggled up through school that happened
2: I I think the one defining word and reality for me has just been music yeah uh although it's been quite a a while in the last couple of years because of the pandemic, uh, I normally would be in my church choir. Um, I love that. I miss that. Um, There's music is, is everything to me. It's like a life force, um, literally. And um, with, I I can't imagine a world without music. I can't uh, imagine because it's expression. It's another form of expression. It's, it's another form of creativity. So that's one of the things that's so great for me is I, I will put on music while I work and it, it, it ends up, you know, it's kind of a conduit for what yeah, sure. it helps. And I may not even be listening to what I'm working on. Like sometimes most time like if I'm doing a, the sunflower issue of ESQ where I'm more, I'll put on the sunflower album and I'll listen to that album. And, and that, that, then I, then I can kind of take what I'm hearing and kind of, use it for my editor's notes or something like that and the feel and the warmth of the music and kind of you know have that guide my my hand in terms of the layout and Mm -hmm. and what i'm trying to communicate but other times i'll just put on music that like when i worked on the carl issue i had some christmas music on Mm -hmm. um and you know it's it's just what again music man music is just a life force and the the beautiful thing for me about um, and I said it in the Carl issue about Carl was that I don't think he's gone uh mm-hmm. It's so unique when we have people who actually for a living what they do that that we that we that we get to meet them or, or whatever, but there's so many walks of life whatever you do if, if you're leaving a print behind some sort of carbon print that you're that even if you're not on earth anymore and you've moved on uh that that people can still experience you and your intention and your purpose and, and, and your gift and what, what you left, what, so that, if that occurs, that's living, that's still present. And the fact that we can put on a Carl Wilson album or a beach boys album and experience Carl, that is living. And, um, that's what I think is astonishing about music. And, and I don't think it's, and it's a value within, in the music, uh, that I think people just take for granted because music yeah. is just so easy to listen to. Sure. But if you if you if you're present with what you're experiencing, uh, to be able to let it wash over you every time, and that doesn't always happen with me. But if I listen to Pet Sounds, and I can't tell you how many times I've heard it, but it's still, you know, uh, I, I'm present with it, and 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 it makes it, you know, it just is enriching. And I can't imagine. I can't imagine. I and mean, you look over here, you see I got. White album box yeah. set. I mean, you look over. I mean, this is can't really tell, but there's all sorts of. This is my wall of CDs over um, here. Okay. That's every every group you can imagine. So I'm a big Beetle nut too. I oh. see you got that Beetle I ha- picture well, behind it you.
1: My, it was my aunt's because she's a big uh, a big, I don't want to say scavenger, but uh, going to yard sales and that stuff, and she found it. And it's a little crooked. I I haven't yet found a Beach Boys poster that is on Amazon that I can get Prime shipping with that is of a uh, standard that I want. So I'm still looking for that. But I wanted to mention you talk about you know music and being a, you know a life force in that sort of area and relating to it, and I'm sure that's how you can connect and be on the same sort of page in a sense with Carl and Brian and those people who share the same sentiment. And you mentioned in the Carl issue about not just him saying um, that the song from Summer in Paradise he sings. Uh, I I don't want to uh, butcher the Hawaii
2: song. Um. Yeah, alaya, Aloha, Aloha. Yeah, you, you know I wanna. But yeah. I can't
1: stick. You mentioned, that. and you also mentioned when you talked to uh, Carlson. I I think it was Justin, where you talk about the interview he had for it must have been Endless Harmony, the movie where he talks about making each other crazy. In the same interview, he mentions about how music is sort of a life force and it's a living being. And I'm sure, like I mentioned, that you sort of relate um, to them in that sense. I'm sure that's what makes Brian, I'm sure, and Mike and the other guys feel at ease
2: with you. Uh, that's that's I. Uh, well, whatever they're what puts them at ease with me, I'm grateful for. What whatever that is, whether it's telling jokes before, because <laughs> that that hasn't happened in a while. I mean, yeah. that's just how I I allowed myself into. The, they allowed me into their world, and that's kind of how I wanted them to kind of know me, to kind of relax, so that it's relaxing. Yeah. Um, it's hard for me to s- speculate on uh, how they feel about me or what they think of me. Um, I can just tell you they're they're great um yeah i'm sure they're they're just they're uh they're kind souls all of them are kind souls and uh they're just like and in other ways they're just that's the thing about them they're human yeah right and if you look at them as humans (laughs) which is why would you look at them any other way yeah granted they've created this this uh, catalog of amazing right. songs and whatnot. Like, yes, that's that's who they are. They've done that. But there's more but, than that. But they, I'll use a term, a cliche term, they put their pants on, you know, one leg at a time. They don't just, <laughs> there's not some magical force that they're just suddenly dressed. I mean, yeah. they're, they're not, they're not above uh, life or, or, you know, they're not godly. They're not. And and so I that's that's the thing that I do see that's kind of uh at times not not anymore but when I was younger and and do it in, I don't know when but I just thought it was always unusual that when when people talk about Brian they they kind of at times oh my god he's 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 a god and stuff like that and I think gosh, I hope they don't mean that literally.
3: Yeah.
2: Um because that's that is a that's that's a thing that people can get into where they lose touch with reality. Sure. Granted, Brian Wilson, there's no make no bones about it. There's no one who does vocal arrangements like he does. There's no one who wrote and created music the way that he did. Um, and and the which is why Pet Sounds became like an, uh, a bottle of wine. I think yeah, Al yeah. calls it like that because years later, we're still appreciating it. So sure, the more yeah. the longer it's around, the more we appreciate it. So I can't imagine in the year Uh, 3,000, what Pet Sounds will be? I mean, my God, it'll still be this thing. And imagine this: in the year 3,000, Pet Sounds will be like Mozart, right?
3: Yeah.
2: Right? I mean, because it'll be that old. 1966 in the year 3,000 is going to be ancient. So, just—I mean, just think about it. I completely agree with the fact that Brian, Brian is a modern day. He is a living, still with us. He is absolutely, I think, our our generations, Mozart, or Beethoven, uh, Wagner, you name it,
3: yeah.
2: he's that guy. Um, but does that make him godly? I, I don't think so. So I always kind of, when I see people yeah. do that or I see people uh, say hurtful things towards other members, that yeah. that equally, for me, is yeah. hard to look at and and think gosh i really hope they don't mean that yeah because this is the type again these are human beings they have feelings and and uh you can't well each of them is important to me and each of them and and i and i never met dennis i had the good fortune to meet carl um and he lives within me today um they are all good, solid people. Not everyone who meets them has that experience. Sure. I am very honored and lucky, lucky to have that experience. And, and, and I mentioned at the beginning that I had gone through some, you know, some health issues. And it was Mike club who spoke to me on the phone and said, hey, I, so I understand you're having a surgery. Uh, I want to give you a stomach exercise to do that will help you unsolicited. Yeah. So this these are people who care and I so that that's my experience and um but they're all caring in their own unique way. And and, and 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 I will not say anything to beach boy fans. This is something I want to I want to communicate. Brian loves Mike. Definitely. And Mike loves Brian. That's an unconditional love. It's unconditional. I've been around both of those guys enough and it's really unique when i'm when I went to brian there was a time when I was backstage with Brian, I guess in the catering room or whatever it was a few years ago, and I felt Mike's presence, which was really weird to me because it was not the Beach Boys tour, it yeah. was Brian right Mike wasn't there, and I felt Mike's presence, and it was weird i and i and it, not that anybody else felt it I didn't talk about it out loud or anything like that, but I felt it and I was after that I because I became aware of that experience I was with Mike at a show backstage somewhere and, and and I didn't feel the same way I didn't feel Brian's presence but when Mike took the stage and began to perform the songs is when I felt Brian's presence when I looked out and saw Mike on stage performing that catalog yeah. Brian's presence was there and I think that's a that when when I experienced that I think it was around 2015, 2016. When I experienced that, I went, son of a gun. There's, <laughs> there, there is something that's just unavoidably beautiful about that. And, and that's, that, to me, is the story of the Wilson and Love dynamic, is that no matter what, doesn't matter my perspective, doesn't matter any fan's perspective, those two will always be emotionally attached um and have a love for one another that I don't think any of us will ever quite understand. It's it's if you think you understand that they truly love each other, there's yes. More. but there's a lot more there and they've been through so much and they and um that's that's I guess where I'll leave that. It's, yeah. they, they there's a lot of deep deep oh, sure passionate love there with a great value
1: I, I want to also talk about, you know, you're beginning with ESQ. You joined, you know, like you mentioned in 93, and at that period for both the Beach Boys, also J&D, they had been around for three decades or a little bit more to that. When you joined that magazine at the time, it had been around for a little bit beforehand, as I did after doing my research. When you joined, how much of that moment when you first started was, well, you know, we'll see how this goes, but who knows what happens. But also you wanted to make sure you're doing, I don't want to say a better job, but you know, complain about that other people but you want to change what happened and bring it up even higher up
2: into the stratosphere. Well, the first question I had with Lee Dempsey was or the first conversation that, that we kind of, one of the first one of the first conversations a long time ago um, was he asked me, Do you want to do it with me? Because I mean, I can't do it alone. They, they approached him because he, he had been writing for the other guys. Okay. And that was that was so they they said hey and i'm only i'm not even paraphrasing here I don't know how the conversation with went with. Whoever contacted him and him with them, but the sense that I got was hey we're burnt out Uh, we don't want to do this anymore, the beach boys won't give us the time of day. And if you take over this business license and do this understand that the beach boys it's not going to give you access to the beach boys. That's how it was kind of communicated to me is, and I thought, okay, I don't care. (laughs) I like the music. So we went in uh, with a very low subscription base. I think it was slightly over 200 people. Uh, Lee bought the business license so we could get up and running, set up a Charlotte post office box for it. And Lee's got a great business background, so he kind of knew those steps. I don't, know, I don't know at that point in my life if I would have been able to execute that. It was an easy assignment for me as, hey, do you want to write about the Beach Boys? Yeah. And I said, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> why not? Exactly. And, and the first interview I got to do was set up uh, by a good friend of ours, Elliot Kendall, um, to talk to Dean. So my very first interview was with Dean Torrance, and I remember I was I was working in radio at the time, so I interviewed him from the radio station I was right. working at. But I was so I remember being so nervous, you know, I had that <laughs> you know that shaky voice, nervous, yeah. you know, when you're when you're meeting somebody first first time. Will you sign my? You yeah. Get a picture. You know? <laughs> so it was that nervousness, and I don't know why, but he made me feel so at ease. Um, just the way we and and i and I think he was surprised by my knowledge uh mm-hmm. even then about things of of his career. I talked to him a lot about the t v pilot that he did with Jan back in the sixties called on the run and uh and so that was kind of the beginning and at that time, my role and that the i don't remember how long we did it, but at that time we actually had to paste onto <laughs> uh onto like we had to take out the pages and paste them, glue them mm-hmm. to flats. And then we had to give the flats to the printer and then I guess they scanned them and then created the magazine that way. I'm not really sure it wasn't on a printing press. It was, it was very rudimentary stuff. Um, <clears throat> we also talked about the look of the magazine. And the look of the magazine I had, I had met Lee a couple of years before. 93. So it was 90 or 91 that we met. We met at a record convention because by that time I was collecting Jan and Dean. I was trying to f- fill every gap that I had in my Jan and Dean collection. They started collecting Beach Boys and by that time I had seen the 85 Malcolm Leo film, An American Band, and I was fascinated by the smile stuff. I mean, anything smile I wanted to know more about. I thought, uh, why did he, why did he record a song about fire? <laughs> what was going on? How did And by that time i was like how did they go from all summer long to pet sounds to fire yeah and i could not get it i i just was trying to wrap my mind around how did this happen in such a short span of time within two years all summer long summer days party barber ann pet sounds good vibrations heroes and villains do you like worms yeah and I just thought, how is this what this is the same group? So I was collecting records, uh, like a maniac at that point, picture sleeves, you know, whatever I could get my hands on. And I met Lee at a record convention. And he was in front of me in the Beach Boy stuff. And I was very impatiently looking over his head, waiting for him to get out of the way, because I and I was concerned that he was gonna buy something that I wanted. Yeah, so definitely. I was being very I was probably intruding upon his face <laughs> I was, you know, doing the like, come on, get out of the way, bub. But we turn, he turned around and we started talking and we became fast friends. And at the time I lived in Charlotte and he lived in Raleigh. It's about a few hour drive from, from one another. And he eventually moved to Charlotte and with his job transferred him here. And he said, hey, I live nearby. And you know, at the time I was a morning show producer at the local oldie station. So um, we, again, we just struck up our friendship. And by that time, I, he said, so sometime after we met at the record convention, he said, hey, you ought to subscribe to this endless summer quarterly. I, I write for it, and I did for one year. So between, I think, 91 to 92, again, before he moved to Charlotte, I subscribed, and you get the four issues. And honestly, to this day, when I think back, I stopped after the year because I didn't think there was any value within it. And, and I, I hate to say it that way. But it was mostly pictures of maybe sheet music and pictures of the editors with their arms around the Beach Boys and then the content inside if Lee wrote an article I read it it was called Chuck's rolling in reference to the Beach Boys engineer Chuck Britz, and it would be an article about a session. And that was interesting. And then Les Chan uh, God rest his soul. um, He (coughs) did the news section so. And again there's no google back then yeah anything that was in this magazine news news wise was interesting but the rest of the magazines was just i just i just felt like this isn't worth it i, I just wasn't learning i didn't feel like i was learning all that much uh. and so i stopped subscribing after a year then you know a year later lee moves down to charlotte We we get together he gets contacted by them in summer of 93 and they say we can't do this anymore we're burnt out and they started in 87 so that's a five year. Right yeah. it's five or six years they were doing it and they just for whatever reason again they had the conversation with him. they didn't want to do it anymore the beach boys were not acknowledging them or whatever I don't know yeah. but. Um, so we took it over with that understanding and I just thought well. Let's have fun with this, and we did. And I look back; the first issue we did it's pretty goofy. We're standing there holding guitars. That was <laughs> Lee's idea. I, I don't, I don't know what we were trying to do, but it just became within about—I don't know. It was in a short time. We we got to meet them, of course. We were, uh, and I think that was oh. Oh, the first show we went to, I'll tell you, this is so we started in August of 93, the first show I go to see with Lee, once we're doing the magazine, is the very first date of their 93 box set tour. And the very first show was in Charlotte. So I go to this show, and they're playing cuts, deep cuts, vegetables, wonderful, (laughs) take a load off your feet. It's like an acoustic tour. And Carl Wilson, I don't I, I want to say it's Vegetables to Wonderful. I think those were the song transitions, but so Carl's playing guitar and singing. He takes his guitar off and goes sits behind the keyboard and sings Wonderful. And I'm thinking, I'm I've died and gone to heaven. Because Carl Wilson I've never seen anything yeah. like this. And and the other the other standout moment of that show for me, Billy was in I I think Billy was a part of I think so. Matt Jardine kind of coming out. To me, that was the Matt Jardine's coming out show to me because he was taking all those high parts. Mm -hmm. And it it just struck me. I just thought, oh, my gosh, I've just seen him. I I can't get over this show. So that just getting into the magazine and seeing that show just ignited kind of a fire in me. Like, wow. You know, I just I, I just couldn't believe it. And I just wanted to just kind of you, that inspiration was my motivation yeah. um and fast forward a few a, a, a few more years you know we get to february of 98 and carl dies and um all i remember feeling and thinking at that time was now i have to do this more than ever because carl's gone and i and i don't know if there's truth to that i don't know if that's true it's how i felt yeah um so i mean i don't know if the beach boys would agree with that ideal or perception um but it's how i felt and i and i felt that that dennis and carl deserved uh the beach boys themselves as a group deserved um someone to be legitimately caring about who they are, who they were and what they've done. And that's just kind of how I've approached it. So that goes back to me telling jokes when I had time with them, because putting them at ease to help them tell their story, to tell their story in a way that it's beautiful and it's which matches the music. Right. Yeah. there's lots of history that we've read about or know about that have to do with other things that are outside the making of the music. And while those things in some cases are more relevant than others, the, there's nothing that's going to change anything about as on these albums. It's nothing that changes it. So, the music is the resource for me. The people who made the music are the umbrella around the resource. So, It's it's like understanding how to take care of a plant. You know, if you don't water the plant, the plant's going to die. And if you don't treat the Beach Boys with the respect that they deserve for having changed the world musically, then then I don't think I deserve their time, or or anyone else for that matter. If if you're not willing to look at what they've done, and categorically look at it as a family. Of music, you know, created by a group of people who earned, who have earned our respect. I, I'm not all about, again, I touched on this a little bit.
3: Yeah.
2: Again, Brian, yes, the foundation, but Carl Wilson, Dennis Wilson, Mike Love, Al Jardine, Bruce Johnston, Blondie Chaplin, Ricky Fatar, David Marks, all of them have contributed in a way that, if not for the contribution, we wouldn't have what we have today so that's i'm i I just found once i once i once and i'll use this because it's how i felt um once the wind in this in my sails kind of picked up when carl left us um i just felt like a gust of support like this um uh, almost like a religious experience like very strong emotional push to make if I was going to do this magazine, then I was going to do it right.
3: Yeah. Now
1: you you had mentioned uh, now uh, the music in the box and that that tour that you uh, saw them on '93 when you start and around that time they had released in '89 they released um still cruising and then the summer in paradise and a few other stuff in the box at '93 which sort of I think helped them get you know bigger again. How do you assess that music? You know, from from that period of time? I mean, are you still a fan or is it now just a professional?
2: appreciation of them what the box set stuff or like well, summer the, in paradise the music
1: the music from that period when you started with uh, endless summer recording, mm-hmm. and into when you started to pick up more uh, with it
2: I, i've been accused of being easy to please <laughs> by my family so um i i think there's a sense that there's truth to that um i love music as i said earlier i love music yeah. and so you know when still cruising came out i can remember I had a cassette in my car and just loving somewhere near Japan, uh, loving it because of the way that the voices marry, right?
3: Yeah. You
2: go back to Pet Sounds and what did Brian do? Well, Brian had a bunch of musicians, the Wrecking Crew and others, jam to the to, into Western, which was this kind of thin studio, and the and the and, the, and, the, and, the, and the, the, the instruments would bleed over one another and create this bigger sound. Well, that's what the Beach Boys do vocally. And so when I would get to hear any song, I don't care what era it's from, when I hear those voices bleed over into one another and, and one guy's voice trails off and then the other guy's guy's voice comes in, it's, it's all I need to be happy. So you go back to God Only Knows and that tale where Bruce and Carl and Brian are taking turns singing, that's yeah, hands down, like, like oh, how do you get over that? but you go all the way fast forward to somewhere near Japan and there's these little moments. And that's that's what it's about for me, is moments. Like Carl sings, um, my engine's all burned out, my crew has all bailed out. And then Bruce comes in.
3: <laughs>
2: somewhere near Japan, that's Al going somewhere near Japan. And Mike goes, and she said, "It's it's that, it's that. It's it's yeah. this. It's just like I want to see that live. <laughs> I want to experience that. I want to be there for that. That's that that that's just a great moment for me. And the '85 album, which, if you talk to a lot of uh, people who grew up on the Beach Boys in the beginning, the '85 album is like ah yeah. or the Summer in Paradise album. Oh God, Brian's not <laughs> even on it. Oh and and I'm sorry, I enjoy them. I enjoy them, I, but I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry because yeah. I, I turn on that 85 album I can remember because I was just going into broadcast school. And then when that album came out and then going into my first radio job, I just remember driving and having that cassette in my car and just singing along to get you back any song, yeah. any song. Because Carl just comes through like a powerhouse it's on that album. Yeah. and And Brian sounds great. And I and I know and I get it. Now again, because I like pop music, I like culture club. So for me to discover that the guy who produced that album was the guy who did Culture Club, I was fine with it. I didn't I didn't I don't I don't get upset because yeah. somebody comes in or if I put on an album that's a new Beach Boy album that I wait I'll give you an example. Nashville Sounds, the Stars and Stripes yeah. thing, right? I got to go down to Nashville and be a part of Fanfare. I was backstage with all of them. All of them were there. And and all the country stars were there. It was fascinating. But then, you know, you get the album and it's kind of like, really? Yeah. They could not have... So and to this day, this is how I feel for that album. They couldn't have like gone to these country artists and said, hey, Willie, we want to do one of your songs. Will you sing it with us? Mm-hmm. And then gone to Rodney Crowell and said, hey, Rodney, we want to do one of your songs. Or we, Here's one of our favorite old country songs will you sing it with us as opposed to just doing beach boy songs again with sure. country artists i just thought that i just to this day it's i'm just kind of a little flat with that but there are still great moments on that record yeah willie nelson warmth of the sun oh, great recording uh, um kathy triccoli singing i can hear music and hearing carl in the background going oh, oh, oh. <laughs> boom you yeah. know for me again just the carl oh oh. oh i need so but again that album rates very low in terms of do i listen to it often no does it bring me joy when i hear it yeah i I don't know you know it's it's got some nice moments um and jimmy webb and timothy b schmidt on caroline no is jimmy god how do you get around that i mean those massive talented people doing beach boy songs i mean so that if you look at it through that spectrum it's You know, you know, so I always try to look at everything through the spectrum of what do I appreciate about it, as opposed to what don't I like about it. So I don't I don't really do the I don't like Um, I usually look at what do I like, what do I enjoy? And so and I can go album by album and pull pull an enjoyable moment. M.I.U. I can tell you, Winds of Change right off the bat is one of the most gorgeous, I think, overlooked uh, songs by Al Jardine that people go, what? what? how does that go? And I say, You gotta listen to it.
3: Yeah.
2: It's not something I can sing to you, even if I was a great singer, which I'm not, but even if I it's it's you have to experience it. You have to put it on and experience it. And and it's it's a great song. And their version of California Dreamin' I thought was fantastic. And that mm-hmm, video yes. I thought was fantastic. It's just it's funny because I will say the cheese fell off the cracker when they did um wipeout you know it just slid <laughs> right off yeah it's not yes. It's even if it was the strongest cheese made <laughs> to man it just still slid and yes. i and i look and i look at that and so there's there's been those moments you know yeah, but definitely. carl is not I, all i can see when, when i saw that carl was not involved i went okay Yes. that told me all i needed to know yeah you know because carl carl was very specific about by that time in their careers, Carl was pretty specific about what he was willing to do and not willing to do. Oh, yeah. and, and Carl was very much into the integrity of what the group was doing and how to forward sure. their musical paths a- and to create more than what they had created, do something beyond what they had done. Um, and his love for rhythm and blues, I think, I think that's why with the Beach Boys is such a diverse group. You know, right. you listen to Wild Honey. It's a rhythm and blues album. And I'm probably, if Carl were alive today, he'd probably cite that album as being one of his favorites, because he was such a ma- major Aretha Franklin, Stevie Wonder, Stevie Wonder. Um, gosh, who, who else was? Anybody rhythm and blues? He loved it. He loved it. As, yeah. you, as you learned in the in the Carl issue, he mm. loved rhythm and blues, and um, so much so. You know, his major writing partner was Myrna smith Wills Schilling from The Sweet Inspirations. And I'll tell you, this is this what I would recommend to anyone. I listened to Carl's 1981 self-titled solo album for a lot, you know, a lot through the years.
3: Yeah.
2: And I just, I'd always go back to it, and I'd listen to it, and it just, I wasn't making a deep connection with it. But in doing this recent issue, and learning more about Myrna, googling her and learning more about the sweet inspirations and i recommend anybody do that because if you go to google the sweet inspirations and learn who's who was in that group it will astonish you because there's some serious historical uh matriarch people in that family to other people who became very successful famous singers and that's that's all i'm going to do because that's i want i want people to discover it themselves so when i discovered who she was not just somebody who was in Elvis' group and sang backup for him, but understood who she was and understood her background and understood she was the lyricist for Carl's Records. I went back and listened to his self-titled album again and had such a much deeper appreciation for it and got it and connected with it. And and that's that's what I think is one of those things that people have to do is they have to, if if you really... Well, not no, they don't have to do anything. If let if if anybody who's watching this, I'm hopeful that they're music fans, first of all. And that they would just allow the music to wash over them and appreciate it and experience it. And and that I think is a lot is difficult for a lot of people to do if they say, Oh, I don't like this specific album. I don't want to listen to this specific album. I don't like it. Brian's let's say Summer in Paradise. Brian's not on it. Why would I listen to it? And Summer in Paradise does have a, a bit of a problem with it and that is Terry Melcher rest his soul had discovered pro tools and it was really Summer in Paradise is one of the first albums in the rock industry that used pro tools yeah you go back and look it's it was like the first album that that was done on so it's historically significant for that purpose and what happened was because they were discovered pro tools when <laughs> they were using pro tools it took, they, they ended up relying on electronics, okay. right? So the drums became synthesized. And a lot of the instrument, instrumentation became synthesized. And some of the vocals became synthesized. And that is that's something you really want to do to a Beach Boys album. Yeah. Um, they should have had a real drummer. They should have had, I mean, Jim Keltner, who everybody knows that name. Of I course, mean, he yeah. was basically the fifth Wilbury. Yes. Um. You know, he plays... Jim Keltner does the drummins on Kokomo. Okay? Oh, yeah. So, But they were sampled sounds. Jim Keltner came up with the sounds that you hear on Kokomo by going into his kitchen and shalt shakers <laughs> and all that stuff. So Van Dyke Parks plays on Kokomo. Okay? Ry Cooter plays the guitar <laughs> on Kokomo. Okay, so you got Jim Keltner, Ry Cooter, Van Dyke Parks on Kokomo.
3: Yeah.
2: And people dismiss Kokomo like it's, <laughs> like it's nothing. No, it's not nothing. It's when you understand who is on that song, it's like holy crap. And then you take into account that it was produced by the guy who used to produce The Birds, <laughs> Terry Melcher. Mm-hmm. And you take into account that it was origi- it, it, it started off being written by Scott McKenzie, the guy who wrote "If You're Going to San Francisco, Where's Some Flowers in Your <clears> Hair." And John John Hunter Phillips of the Mamas and Papas. You got right there with just Melcher, McKenzie, and Phillips, great historical yes. 1960s legacy. Right there. You had Ry Cooter, Van Dyke Parks, and Jim Keltner. It's like, well, wait a minute. Why is this song so passe or tossed away by Beach Boy fans as this unimportant recording? It's not unimportant, it's historical. And. And granted, it's just a pop-friendly fair, right? Yeah. It's just a pop. It's just a great. Everybody knows it. You're you know it. I know it. Your grandma knows it. <laughs> grandma's grandmas knows, and great grandparents know it. It's just one of those great songs, and it's an yeah. testament. It's a testament to. I would say, when it, in reference to Mike Love here, it's a testament to Mike's ability to recognize with Terry potential. Yes. And 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 ex and and be able to ex- extrapolate the potential and execute it. And that's really Terry's execution. But you know, it th- that's a special team up right there. They 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 they, ex- they did some great stuff together. And in, and the Summer in Paradise album has some really interesting special moments for me. Yes. Lahaina Aloha is one of them. Um Strange things happen is another. I like it. I just like it. She believes in God. Yeah, she believes in God. (laughs) It's just the delivery. It's the execution of the song. But then there's other moments. You and you hear. Remember walking in the sand, and then back down there is this. Remember, and it's like, ooh, does that? You know, we don't need to hear an electronic vocal going. Remember. It's it's, and so it hurts the song. Yeah. It hurts the recording. And so when you kind of, I so I get it for anybody who's listened to that song. Or that album and said, yeah, I get it. Because unfortunately, in the advent of Pro Tools and the execution of Pro Tools on a Beach Boys album, that album, I think, would be so much better today. Exactly. If it had been real musicians, yeah. just all background vocals by actual people and got rid of that synthesized muck, Yeah. Uh, I'll call it. But at the same time, it's historical because it was being discovered at the time. And Terry Melcher was the producer, being the producer he was, was ahead of his time.
3: Yeah. Right.
2: But it hurt because it's a Beach Boys record. Yeah. So, you know, you just take, you just take, but again, you have to look at the information as a part of your conclusion to what you're listening to. And that's, but again, I, I there's songs on there that I, I enjoy listening to the "One Summer Night," you know, Bruce's song, and how and how it segues into Al. I I, I like it. Again, anytime I get to hear those voices, yeah. and Al's got such a great voice to this day. Of course, I mean, yes. You know.